0: Scripture reading today is from the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 9, verses 36 to 43. Now in Joppa, there was a disciple whose name was Tabitha, which in Greek is dorsus. She was devoted to good works and acts of charity. At that time, she became ill and died. When they had washed her, they laid her in a room upstairs. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, who heard that Peter was there sent two men to him with the request, Please come to us without delay. So Peter got up and went with them, and when he arrived, they took him to the room upstairs. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other clothing that Dorsus had made while she was with them. Peter put all of them outside, and then he knelt down and prayed. He turned to the body and said, Tabitha, get up. Then she opened her eyes, and seeing Peter, she sat up. He gave her his hand and helped her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he showed her to be alive. This became known throughout Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. Meanwhile, he stayed in Joppa for some time with a certain Simon, a tanner. The word of the Lord. Take a moment now for silent reflection.
1: Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time that we have. We have busy lives. We have a lot on our minds and our hearts. And yet we have time to listen to you, Lord. So speak to us, we ask. May our eyes be open to your truth. May our hearts feel your love. May we be drawn close to each other and to you in this moment. And may your truth speak to us. We pray this in your name. Amen. Hello, everyone. Thank you. I need feedback, I need affirmation. You know that. Um, I want to start off by telling you a story, or asking you a question, really. And the question is this. Have you ever had an article of clothing that you just loved, absolutely loved, and when you put it on, you felt better about yourself? Yes? Okay. Shoes, maybe? I don't know. A jacket? A dress? Whatever it might be. But we've all had that experience of having that one article of clothing that we will wear thin, because it, it makes us feel beautiful, It makes us feel uh, well inside, right? And informs us um, that we are worthy. I had an article of clothing like that. Actually, my brother had an article of clothing like that. And if anyone has an older sibling, maybe you've had this experience where you creep into their room and steal from their closet, I mean, borrow from their closet. I would do that with my brother, Justin, Justin Trudeau. I have have to do that because my brother's name is Justin Trudeau. Um, Cool guy. Um, But it was his Delta Chi fraternity sweatshirt. See, he went to Oregon State while I was in junior high, and back in the day, college shirts were really cool, and fraternity shirts were really cool to me. It had a um, Delta, where are my frat bros here? (laughs) Delta and an X and it was dark blue and then it had that had that like green plaid puffy stitch work on it, you know? And I would put that sweatshirt on and walk the halls of my junior high like I was my brother, like I was frat president. <laughs> and I just felt so cool. You know, like I didn't know anything about a fraternity, but all of a sudden I felt like I was part of one. <laughs> <laughs> like I could invite anyone in junior high to come to a frat party with me. <laughs> but it was just this one time to have this article of clothing that made me not only feel cool, it actually made me feel protective, P- protected by my older brother, literally. My brother was older than me and he wasn't around and I, my, my father lived states away and there was something about that sweatshirt that said, I'm a little brother and I've got a big brother, so don't mess with me. It was a sweatshirt that was cool and protective. It was like armor to me in some ways. Clothing can do that. It can speak to you in ways that go beyond just the way you look in the mirror. It can tell a story about your family. It can tell a story about somebody who cares for you if it's a gift that you love too, that somebody loves you. The thing I want to start off with today is really honing in on the widows in this story. It certainly is a miraculous story about Peter coming from Lydda all the way to Joppa, and it is a resurrection story of Tabitha. But I really want us to hone in on the widow's role in this short little story for a second. Because what do they do when Peter comes? They're in deep mourning, their hearts are broken. Tabitha is dead. And what do they want to show Peter more than anything? Their tunics. Their garments, their clothing, because this clothing meant so much to them. It was Tabitha's love personified, worn on their backs, stitched just for them. It was tactile, it was compassion, it was justice that you wear on your body. And that's what they came rushing to Peter with. It was a sign and symbol that somebody cared about them. And now that person was gone. They're heartbroken because who will provide for them the way Tabitha did? We don't know much about Tabitha, but clearly she was a person of privilege if she had an upper room and could provide clothing to widows. If she could look over and care for widows, that meant that she had more than enough for herself And she gave generously and served her community well. And there was a hole in their community in Joppa because of her death. What a profound woman that is, that a whole town would grieve and call for for Peter from miles away to come to do something. We've lost Tabitha, and yet we hold the garments of love and compassion and of justice in our hands, and we need you to see these articles of clothing. So much more profound than a frat hoodie, obviously. But it tells you something about Tabitha, and it tells you something about the widows in their time. You know, we, we don't talk about widows that much in our society because we have things like insurance, life insurance. But a widow, widow in the Old Testament uh, uh, kind of symbolizes what we still face today, So those who are dealing with poverty, with scarcity, who are outsiders and marginalized, in that time, the women were incredibly marginalized if they did not have uh, access to the patriarchal system to be married and to be provided by and protected by a man. Now, we don't talk about widows, per se, in the same way today, but for the most part, this hasn't changed People are falling out of the systems of prosperity all the time. People are oppressed and dealing with unjust systems all the time. And it can happen quickly, like someone passing away. Or it can be a story that they've known all their life. We have this phrase within my family systems, and it's funny to us, but it might not be funny to you. It's one of those kind of hard truths, dark jokes within our family. We, we say these words uh, and it's only understood in my family, but I'm going to share you, with you, I don't know why. Um, it's Keep Gene Alive. And who is Gene? Gene was my stepfather. And why is that even remotely funny to us? Why do we say, look, we got to keep our stepfather alive? Because we know what it was like before he came into our lives. See, my, my mother was a divorcee, and my, my father had left... Um, they divorced actually in Kentucky. I've lived in Kentucky. I don't remember anything about Kentucky, but she took me to Oregon, and he went to New Orleans, and we were living with my grandmother, who was this wonderful dust bowl baby Okie, uh, who helped raise me. So my initial memories were of my grandma Naomi Hightower, and she helped raise me. And then my mother finally got uh, got a house and got out of my we got out of my grandmother's house, but it was on the wrong side of the tracks. It was a rough neighborhood. And some of my formative memories were trying to understand why my mother was crying. And I I have these distinct memories. One was seeing that there was somebody rummaging through our car, and I didn't know it at the time. But then I I realized it's because somebody was breaking into our car. We lived in a neighborhood that didn't have the security that my mother needed for me and my brother. Another distinct memory was when uh, I saw her crying over the checkbook. I did not understand why my mom was crying in those moments. She just looked weak to me, honestly, if I'm really honest, and that's kind of cruel to say probably, but that's the truth. When you're a kid, you're kind of confused. And why is mom crying? Well, now I know. Mom was crying because it didn't matter what she wrote on that paper, the money wasn't in the bank. That check was going to bounce. So early on, I saw my mother deal with scarcity, deal with some poverty. I'm not saying that we, we had the hardest life, but it was definitely the hardest times in her life without a husband. And then Gene came along, and I have this wonderful stepfather. He's so boring, <laughs> so boring. <laughs> I, I'd say this to his face, we know this. But he is so faithful. He is so loving. He was this Christ-centered man that came into our lives and as soon as he came into our lives and my mother and Jean fell in love, we all of a sudden moved to the other side of town. Everything changed when Jean came. And I love my stepfather dearly. And I love my father dearly. I love my family. But, you know, we have these complications, obviously, in our history. But it was my grandmother that coined the phrase, Keep Jean alive. <laughs> Like, whatever happened with the first husband? Okay, but keep this one alive. (laughs) I'm glad it's funny to you. I I seriously did not know if it was too dark. (laughs) But it is kind of dark. It is kind of sad that a woman needs a man, right? To be valued in society enough to have enough. These widows in this story, it was even a much more cruel patriarchal system than we live in today, or the one I grew up with. They would have mouths to feed and no means to do so. But they did have a Tabitha. So just imagine when that one person that has privilege, has power, has position, is dead. For the widow's hope was dead. Probably re-triggering feelings of abandonment crying out to Peter, but also crying out to Paul, who will provide for us now? You know, the Bible talks about widows and orphans, and if you haven't read these verses, hear them now. In James chapter 1, verses 27, it says, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Brothers and sisters, that's our call today, to look after the widows of this world, the orphans of this world. In Isaiah chapter 1, verse 17, it says, Learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. You know, here in San Francisco, we don't say widow when we talk about people that are marginalized. We, we say homeless, right? And I try to retrain myself not to call people homeless because being homeless is a condition. You don't have a home. You aren't actually homeless. What we're talking about are people experiencing the cruel life on these streets in San Francisco without a home. And it's glaring. I don't think I go, I I work in the Tenderloin, so certainly I see this up front and in Technicolor often. But even if you live in the Richmond or Noe Valley or North Beach, you will see somebody face down on the concrete. And it is so incredibly disturbing, isn't it? At City Hope, we, we really are addressing the needs of people that are living on our streets, and we're welcoming them, and I think that video does a good job of, of starting to tell you about what we're doing, and we're releasing three additional videos to talk about the center and how we've been doing that for six years. So we're going to talk about the house, about providing a sober living environment for 25 men and women for two years, and now the cafe. We have these wonderful, cool, creative ways that we are actually acting on our uh, values for caring for people on the streets and calling them into community. And it's funny, we're doing all these things and they're hard to express because they're so diverse and collaborative and creative. Um you know, I'll have conservative Christians come to me and they'll say, okay, tell me about what you're doing. And I'll say, hey, listen, this is what we're doing. We're doing bingo and a dinner and a menu and we're doing uh, karaoke and we're doing a uh, movie night and we're giving out a menu and it's dignity of choice. People get to choose what they want to eat and everything's homemade. Our, uh, there's so much intention we're putting into the food Oh, yeah, we're doing housing, too, and it's a two-year program. We're helping people go from rehab or federal prison into, to uh, st- stable lives over a long term. And now we got a cafe, and we're doing these lattes, and we're partnering with other nonprofits to offer all these resources to people. And a conservative Christian, every now and then, I'll get this, will say, but when do you tell them about Jesus? And I'm like, did you, did you not hear? I said karaoke. <laughs> Did you not hear? I said a latte. (laughs) Because I I get this lived experience of, of welcoming people, respecting them, listening to their challenges and their sorrows, and just listening to them is really important. I get to celebrate them. And a latte goes really far for somebody who's never had a latte. And they just know that we come from a church. And that we have faith and love and hope. And it can be frustrating. Honestly, I'm going to share with you, it can be frustrating when somebody's like, they kind of don't get the tactile nature of caring for some way, the way that Tabitha did, in that she stitched clothing for them. It's almost like we have to hear the words, the code talk of the church, in order to really feel like we've made an impact with the love of God. So that might be a conservative Christian, but... But on the other side, and this is probably going to hit more home to us in this room, a progressive or a liberal Christian will nod with everything we do at City Hope, agree with it profoundly, but not do a damn thing about it. They'll agree, and they might type something up on the internet affirming it, And when I say not do a thing about it is that they'll never sacrificially give and join the actual impactful, tactile justice that we're doing. And that can be frustrating to me. Probably even more. It's not enough just to believe that something should be done. We have to do something. And we have to be faithful. Like Tabitha was faithful. And it has to be tactile. It has to be touchable. It has to be tangible. And that's what I love about what we're doing. It is a way to actually meet your neighbor who is on the streets, to look them in the eye, to feed them a delicious meal, to sit down with them, eat with them, get to know them, and for them to give you love. It's so much more relational, and that's, that's the most important thing about tactile justice. It's tangible, it's touchable, it's relational. For me, that's where the rubber meets the road. That's where our calling is, especially at a church. We can't just say that, that this is what I believe, but this is not what I do. Tabitha is an inspiring character, and we don't even know that much about her, but she had privilege, she had wealth, and she sewed clothing and put it on the backs of the poor. And when she died, people mourned. If City Church died today, <laughs> I know that's morbid, <laughs> would this city mourn? And you know, we've asked ourselves that question Are we making an impact? in the way that if we weren't here, it would matter to the poor. In many ways, I believe, yes, it will. And we need to keep doing this good work. We we need to keep funding it, people. We need to keep giving our time to it. You know, I I wanted to share my conviction in that way with you because I hear it too. I was just talking to uh, Mark the other day and we were kind of lamenting of whether some of the donors that give, is it even sacrificial? Do they even feel it? (laughs) Because we have people in this world, in the city, that they have too much money. And when they give, I don't even think it hurts. We as Christians, though, if we're following after Christ... We're called to actually give till it hurts. And, I, and it might be finances. But it might be your talent. It might be your time. But to give until it means something to you. And you are invested in the impact and the outcome in other people's life. Not just a tax write-off. You know, I, lo- I love the... Uh, we're going we're gonna to do the karaoke thing right now, Okay? Bruce Hornsby in the range. I'm gonna leave out two lines. And you're gonna fill them in. This is participorial. Standing in line, making time, waiting for the welfare dime, because they don't have a because they can't buy a job. The man in the silk suit hurries by as he catches the poor old lady's eye. Just for fun, he says. Get a job. Every time I hear that, get a job, Whew. it's like fix yourself. Such cruel, wor- cruel words to say to somebody in an employment line. And then it says, that's just the way it is. Some things will never change. That's just the way it is. Ah, but don't you believe them. I understand how defeating it is to look at the issue of our housing crisis, our opiate crisis, our broken health care system, our poverty, and the wealth divide that we've created. It is overwhelming to look at. But if the church isn't willing to look at it and hear the cries of the poor, who is? I go to different states. I have family now in Texas and Louisiana, and in, inevitably somebody would be like, huh, San Francisco. <laughs> you, ever been, you ever been in this conversation?" Somebody finds out you live here? Huh. So, uh, homeless problem? Kind of gets to, like, well, why do you live there? And it's like, oh, I love this city so much. Don't you talk about my city. <laughs> right? And my gut reaction is, is often it's like, listen, this is not just a San Francisco problem. This is an American problem. And the problems of America end up on our doorstep. But if we're people of faith, guess what? It's not just a problem, it's a person, right? It's the image of God. We minister and care for people from all over the country, if not the world, here in San Francisco. Brothers and sisters, that's an opportunity for us to be the church, to give sacrificially, to love, and to care for the widows of this world. They are coming to your doorstep. What are you going to do about it? As people of faith, we cannot be resigned to it. That's just the way it is. Or this is too complex for me. I'm just going to take care of me and my own. We, as people of faith, have to look at this as our great opportunity to love our neighbors the way that Tabitha did and to provide for them and do justice in a very tactile way, a real way, a substantive way, not just a theoretical value. We get to meet our neighbors and look them in the eye. That's why we live here. That's why God has called us to this place. And if you're feeling convicted today, and and this is a call to do more, that's great. I also want to tell you that God is at work at City Church, and we have been able to build something that continues to grow and meet these needs in very awesome ways. I'm humbled by it. It's beautiful. If you haven't been to City Hope, please come, please serve. Next week, 830 to 11 is our breakfast. Come around all the people that are already serving. hear the stories, not just from me, but everyone that gives their time and cares about City Hope and the ways um, that we're serving this great city and serving our neighbors. Come to that, please. It is a great breakfast sandwich. (laughs) But get involved because we have this wonderful opportunity and we're doing it. You're in a church that is doing it. And I'm thankful to all of you for that. I want to tell you one story that hit, hit me like a ton of bricks, um, a reality that kind of clicked for me a little while ago, and it's about a person that was a part of our church, and his name was Everett. And I met Everett when we were doing worship services in county jail, and we were doing them in uh, the mental ward. This was part of our kind of our origin story of uh, City Hope, if you will. We we would meet people in county jail, in hospitals. We were going to the pl- before we had a place. We were going to the places where people were stuck. And we would go to county jail, and that's where I met Everett in the mental ward. And he was a sweet man. He was a Texan. He, he told me about his life, and he broke my heart because he, he said, you know what, all my life I feel like I've been doing the Thorzine shuffle, is what he called it. He wasn't against being medicated. He was against being over-medicated. He feels like his, He felt like his whole life was a fog. And he had found himself in county jail. I don't know why, but I do know that often when we don't take care of the mentally ill in our society, in our city, we only take care of them once they've become criminally mentally ill. That's when we get them the health care in our jail, which is stupid. Because <laughs> if you've been to jail, it will make you mentally ill. It's not a place to heal. It's a tough place. But anyways, I met him there, and we talked, and he got released, and he joined City Church. He became a member of City Church. I saw him have great days. I saw him have very hard days. His mental health was always a struggle that he was wrestling with. Um, I remember once we went out to a Chinese dinner, and he had cut his own hair, and he was talking about Martians, the whole nine yards, right? And I was heartbroken and and he had this horrible haircut. But then I saw him get health care and scrap it together. He worked so hard just to survive in our city. And eventually his mother grew sick and he moved back to Houston. We stayed in touch. He was part of the mission site. Pastor Nault was really involved in his life also and even visited him in Houston when he moved back. Sadly, he, he um, had cancer and passed away in 2017. But the thing that gives me such peace is he was with his family, and he was really healthy. His final days of his life were really good days, but he passed away in 2017. But I, I specifically had this memory about Everett that I wanted to share with you, and it happened in a coffee shop in the Mission. It was a boutique coffee shop, and it was the coffee shop I wanted to go to, and we were going to sit down and talk, and you know, I, I went in there as myself, with all my privilege, and I knew what I wanted a cappuccino, and I knew what it was going to taste like, and I was excited about it. I went in there, and then trailing behind, he went up to the barista, went up to the, uh, the coffee bar, and he asked for syrup in his coffee. You know, just the push-pump kind of vanilla or hazelnut or whatever it might be. And the barista treated him like crap. The barista looked at him like he was less than nothing. The barista looked at him and talked to him like he was stupid. It's one of the few times, there's been a couple times in San Francisco where I've seen that kind of bougie lifestyle we live turn on somebody who doesn't know our code talk and isn't welcome into our privilege. And I was so angry at this barista. And then I realized, man, I brought him into the wrong place. These people won't welcome him here. He does not belong in this place. And it really, really bothered me. And I forgot about all that memory, right? Fast forward to a couple months ago, you know, in the fall we opened the City Hope Cafe. We have this beautiful espresso machine we have this wonderful brass bar. We've created this beautiful coffee house for the Tenderloin and for people on the street to come in. And I was standing behind the bar. I was in there all alone. And it, it's like God reminded me of that story where I was so angry that there was this place that I belonged and an Everett did not belong. And I'm sitting in the cafe, Or I'm standing in the cafe, cafe, and I'm realizing, whoa, (laughs) we built a coffee house for Everett. We built a coffee house for my friend. We built a coffee house where people will get, we're serving really good lattes. And I mean that because we begged for good beans from really bougie places. (laughs) We are creating the sense of belonging that everyone deserves, whether an orphan, a widow, an inmate, an addict. They belong at City Hope. You've created that church. So thank you. There's one other place that I want to talk about other than City Hope, wherever it belonged. He belonged here. The church's doors are open to everyone. There are too few institutions who have doors that wide. Keep these doors open, church. Welcome them in. Because when a Tabitha dies, the whole community gets hurt. Be like Tabitha. Give sacrificially. Do justice in a tactile way. Open the doors, church. Welcome in the widows. Hold them. Care for them. Do not be overwhelmed by the problems. God's with you. Don't give up. And as Peter said to Tabitha, I want to relay to you. He said, Tabitha, get up. tide is about resurrection. We are people of faith. We must believe that God is at work in this city. So to you, brothers and sisters, get up. Keep getting up to care for the orphans and the widows of this world. Let us pray. Lord, I thank you for these moments where we... we get our bell rung a little bit by you, and we wake up, and we get up, and we realize we are living here for purposes beyond ourselves. That you are calling us to a higher calling, a deeper love, Lord... So remind us how to do that. When we feel overwhelmed by what we face in this city and in our lives, remind us that you are with us, that your son is resurrected, that death does not have the the final word. Help us to be creative and collaborative. May we express your love to us, to our neighbors, in very practical ways that make huge impacts. God, so that you might be honored that your kingdom might be known and your son might be glorified. We pray this in your name. Amen.